Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for bringing everyone here safely and through traffic and other delays. And thank you, Father, that we have the word in front of us as always every night. Every week we spend our time, Father, in your word. And whenever we can, we're here because we know, Father, this is where life is found. This is where the truth is found. And this is where you are found. And we ask, Lord, that as we enjoy this study tonight, seeing it in a new light, that you would remind us through it of your awesome power and of your uh, wisdom and of your ability, Father, to overcome any obstacle. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're going to study the first stage of the Exodus. I say first stage because after we move past this chapter, you'll find that there are several steps to the Exodus, to the movement of Israel. Tonight is the first step. That is their flight from Egypt and from the Egyptians' pursuit. The Israelites, as you remember from last week, have already started to move eastward out of Egypt. They've moved from Ramses, then to Succoth, and then again from Succoth to Etham. You may notice on my map and even on your own map, if you have maps in your Bible, that many of these places, if not all of them, are marked with question marks after their names. That's how my Bible prefers to record these places. The question marks here reflect scholars' uncertainty about where these locations are, where they actually existed. That's an important detail to remember tonight. As we go deeper into the events of the Exodus, it's going to be increasingly the case that the locations mentioned in the text are shrouded in mystery. We simply don't know for sure where they are, though there are clues in many cases that help us get close. I want to emphasize that. Even though your maps may suggest locations for the places that are mentioned in this account, that does not mean those locations are correct. The maps in your Bible are not inspired. Okay? I used to have one person, when I asked them what, what part of the Bible is inspired, they said just the red part. The red text. Yeah, no. So most of the places mentioned in Exodus, and particularly here in Exodus 14, starting with Etham, including most of the stopping places that we're going to learn about as they wander, the Red Sea crossing location, even... Mount Sinai itself, all of these locations are guesses. They're guesses. And those guesses are almost certainly wrong. Because the odds are against them being right. In most cases, there is no archaeological evidence to support their locations. There's no way to go to where they are, dig up the dirt, or find any evidence whatsoever to support that that is in fact the right location. I'm emphasizing this because tonight we're going to look at where some of these locations probably are based on what we can learn from the text and then also in some cases based on some archaeological circumstantial evidence. But at the end of the day, these locations are approximate at best, guesses at worst, and obviously I may be wrong as well, but I think you're going to agree that at least in a few cases that the conventional wisdom about where these places exist is more legend than fact. And yet there are some strong clues in the Bible itself that can lead us to other locations, locations different than the ones that have traditionally been cited. Ones that, while traditional scholars might not agree, the Bible does point us in these other directions. So we'll do some of that tonight. Just remember, the scholars' guesses are not inherently better than our guesses. By definition, a guess is a guess. This is all simply to say that a lot of what you've been shown through history is not true. And by the way, that shouldn't surprise any student of the Bible. How many things are considered true in the world that are not actually true when we go and look at them in the Bible? That should be something you're used to seeing, if anything. Tonight's lesson will include an examination of one of those mysterious locations. And specifically, we're talking now about the crossing of the Red Sea. And I'm going to enlist the help of a video presentation at the end of the lesson which tries to examine one possible location for the crossing. And the video is one researcher's opinion on the place of the Red Sea crossing. And I think it's provocative, and personally, I think it's convincing. It lines up with the biblical text. It is based on some powerful circumstantial evidence. But in the end, the video is just one perspective. And just like the maps are not inspired, neither is the video. So, 
I'm leaving the video until the end of tonight's lesson simply as a food for thought. I want to be clear the teaching for the night is going to come from Scripture, not from a video. The video is for entertainment purposes only. And because it's copyrighted, I cannot make this available on the website, but I did include a link to where you can purchase it on Amazon.com in the notes. If you want to find it for yourself, go to the notes. Now, turning to the text. Last week, we saw the nation prepare to leave on this week-long exodus. The angel of the Lord, that being the second person of the Godhead, was leading the nation forward as a cloud by day and as a fire by night. And the Lord's presence will accompany the nation in this manner for the entire 40 years that they spend wandering in the desert. And from that point now, they move out into the wilderness to begin their departure. Let's go to the text. We're actually going to pick up in the last two verses of chapter 13 just to give ourselves a little context from where we've been. And then we're going to move forward from that point. Exodus 13, 21. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they may travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Do you think about this in your mind as you consider what it must have looked like to the people? Some scholars have suggested that the cloud in the daytime had the effect of covering the nation from the effects of heat of the hot sun during the day while leading them. And then, of course, at night, the fire gave light and some measure of warmth in the cold desert nights. So it was more than just a indicator of where to go. It also had these additional benefits. We also noted last week that these two objects make it possible for the nation now to travel seven straight days, nonstop, day and night. Remember, seven days of feast now memorialize this seven days of movement. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a period in which you don't use leaven to cause your bread to rise because it memorializes the haste of their movement for these seven days in which there was no chance to have bread rest and rise. In 1321, we're told, they travel by day and by night. How could two million people, two million plus, travel for seven straight days despite the presence of light at night? Well, it can only be answered by saying this was some supernatural provision of God. God enabled this remarkable feat. And that's not out of keeping with what we've been watching already. He's been doing many remarkable things, many things yet to come even. But the question remains, why did he insist that they move so quickly? Well, the events of chapter 14 give us that answer. So in chapter 14, verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Pahai Hiroth between Migdal and the sea. You shall camp in front of Baal Zephron, opposite it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. The nation moves into the wilderness under the Lord's direction. And as they go out, we're given some general description of where they go. It's apparent, though it's not stated, that the Pharaoh sends spies after them to tail them as they move. How do we know that? Well, we hear that the Pharaoh is receiving reports for what is happening to them as they've moved out into the land. Now, he doesn't have satellites. He doesn't have aircraft to follow them. It has to be through the old-fashioned way. So he sent people, spies, to follow the nation. The Lord tells Israel, even before they begin their trek, that Pharaoh will be watching and that what he sees will convince him that Israel has become lost and is trapped and therefore is vulnerable in the desert wilderness. But then notice in verse 4, the Lord reveals to Moses that Pharaoh's perception here is intentionally being created by the Lord so as to cause Pharaoh to chase after Israel. In fact, the Lord is not finished even hardening Pharaoh's heart. He's going to once again cause Pharaoh to think that he can defeat Israel with his army. And in that way, God can now turn and defeat Pharaoh and the army of Pharaoh. So the Lord here is using Pharaoh's sin to glorify himself through a display of power. And that's exactly what he's been doing the whole way through. Remember what the Lord told Moses at the very beginning of this entire series of events concerning Pharaoh. 
He said, the Lord raised Pharaoh up for this very purpose, that his power might be displayed in him. And here, Pharaoh now is fulfilling that purpose once again. Pharaoh existed for one reason, according to God, to be defeated by God. And so here Pharaoh now is once again, one last time, in fact, positioning himself against Israel so that God can now defeat him. In the first of these verses in Exodus 14, we've already been given a number of name places that indicate where the nation of Israel camped in the desert, in the wilderness, as they exited Egypt. And as I mentioned already at the beginning of the evening, the location of all of these places are mysteries to us today. Your Bible probably doesn't list them on any map. If it were to, it's a complete guess. A complete guess. We have no archaeological evidence to support any of the supposed locations. So, can we determine an appropriate location for them from Scripture alone? Well, perhaps. Let's begin by simply noting the geographical boundaries of the event. In this text, first thing to note is, They are going into a wilderness that's listed in verse three. The wilderness has shut them in. So what is the wilderness considering where they are? Well, we've already marked here Succoth, perhaps Etham. We know Etham has to be somewhere near Succoth because it's said to be right on the borders of Egypt as they leave Egypt. So it's somewhere right in that region, let's say. And then we're going to mark the sea red so that you know where the Red Sea is, because some people don't realize it's both sides of the Sinai Peninsula. And then we're going to look at the text. It says the wilderness has shut them in. Well, if I look at this map and I ask myself, how can you be shut in by the wilderness? And I consider the geography of the Sinai Peninsula. Then it has to be that somewhere in this region they are wandering. That's the only thing that is wilderness outside of Egypt in which there's the potential to be shut in, to be trapped. And particularly in this case, by the fact that there is sea on either end or either side of the Sinai Peninsula. That would create the boundaries that would then result in a shutting in of the people. So if we look at the geography of the peninsula, we immediately start to narrow the possibilities for where this trek, this seven-day exodus, would have taken the nation of Israel. For example, we know that they are fleeing Egypt. So it is a reasonable assumption that they moved eastward, is it not? It makes no sense to assume that they crossed, for example, from the east side of some body of water over to the west side. That would make no sense. That would be moving in the opposite direction of where they're said to be trying to go. So we have to assume right up front that wherever this crossing occurs, it is a crossing that goes from west to east, moving away from Egypt. So we have to assume locations that has Israel backed up and unable to escape except across a body of water, a body of water which is on their eastern side and is somewhere associated with the Sinai Peninsula and obviously has to be the Red Sea. So that only gives us really two possibilities. They're either on the western side of the Gulf of Suez or they're on the western side of the Gulf of Aqba. Those are the only two places in which you could be shut in between the sea or by the sea and going in the direction that we know they have to be going in. Some have suggested that Israel was not backed up against the Red Sea, but rather against some other body of water, perhaps something called the Reed Sea. The Reed Sea is one of these smaller bodies of water up quite a bit north of the Gulf of Suez. They suggest it based on, first, the words in Hebrew for Red Sea, Yamsup, and it's literally translated Red Sea. Some have tried to say it actually means Reed Sea. And despite the fact that those two sound awfully similar in English, they're not at all similar in Hebrew. And it's a completely nonsensical argument. There is no serious Hebrew scholar that supports the conclusion that the words in the Bible should have been translated Reed Sea. Secondly, the description of the crossing itself doesn't fit with the kind of body of water that the Reed Sea is. It's an extremely shallow, marshy, swampy body of water. You could almost walk across it without a parting of the water. The point is that when we hear the story, the waters in this body are so massive, they create walls on either side of the people. There is nothing consistent with the text, nor even the location makes sense in light of the story. So we're talking about the depths of the Red Sea, either the Gulf of Suez or the Gulf of Aqaba. 
So if Israel wandered to a point in which they were backed up against the sea and it is in one of these two places, let's consider the possibility first that they crossed the western side of the Suez. Let's start with the first possibility. Did they cross on the western side? So they must have wandered somewhere on the western side of the Suez, reaching some point in which their only hope now was to cross the Suez, the Red Sea, and go to the other side. There are two serious problems with this assumption. The first is they would not have been exiting Egypt, would they? They would have been sojourning in Egypt. But the text of the scripture says clearly they have gone out of Egypt. They have left Egypt. In that kind of a scenario, they've just walked through the breadth and height of Egypt before they exited. Even if they were to hug the Red Sea at the edge of the Gulf of Suez, it's still in Egypt. The second problem is, even if they were to have crossed the Red Sea at some point along the Gulf of Suez, we remember from last week that the Egyptian Empire at the time included ownership of most of the Sinai Peninsula. And historically, they've always had ownership over the Sinai Peninsula. Now, the degree of control they exerted over that land varied from century to century, from dynasty to dynasty. And as the power of Egypt waxed and waned, their control over that land would diminish or would increase. But historically, and in the time of the 18th century, the Egyptian empire had included even parts of Canaan. So if they had crossed... They're still in Egypt, or at the very least, they're still accessible to Egypt. They haven't escaped Egypt's control at that point. Taking these two together, it makes the whole premise that they could have crossed over at the Gulf of Suez tenuous at best and really not logical, not considering what the text says. Let's examine the other possibility. What if it's the Gulf of Akba that they're crossing? Well, the western side of the Gulf of Akba is the best location considering the text of Scripture. First of all, it's a wilderness. Sinai is the wilderness. It's hemmed in by the Red Sea, not on just one side, but both sides. It provides for an escape only by a crossing of the Red Sea from the west to the east away from Egypt. If this were the case, if we're actually saying that Israelites came through the Sinai and wandered until they reached the Gulf of Akba and then crossed over the Red Sea at that point, we are saying that Mount Sinai is not located in the Sinai Peninsula. Mount Sinai would have to be located in present-day northwest Saudi Arabia. Could this be possible? Well, we're going to examine the location of Mount Sinai later in a few chapters in much more detail, including, as I said, watching another video at that point, which examines archaeological evidence to support the possibility that the mountain is in northwest Saudi Arabia. For now, let's just see if the Bible leaves room for that possibility. First, let's remember what we've already read back in chapter 3 of Exodus. Mount Sinai is the same mountain where Moses first heard from the Lord in that burning bush. Do you remember? At that time, he was in a place called Midian, working for Jethro, his father-in-law. And in verse 1, it says, Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, as he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness, this is the, the side of Midian closest to the sea, to the Gulf of Akba. As he was leading his flock to that point, he came to a mountain that the Bible calls Horeb, the mountain of God. So it's located in Midian on the western side of that land. If we look at a map, we find that ancient Midian is the place directly to the east of the Gulf of Akba. It's always been placed there. It's never been placed anywhere else, to my knowledge, in any maps I've ever seen. Later in the chapter, we read this in verse 12. He said, certainly, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, notice that phrase, out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. So at the moment they've left Egypt, they will end up at this mountain. What mountain? A mountain that was in Midian when God first spoke to Moses. Third, we have Paul's description of this same place, which he writes about in Galatians 4. He's talking here about the law relative to grace, and he's using an allegory of Isaac and Ishmael taken from their mothers, Sarah and Hagar. But he reaches a point in verse 24 when he says, This is allegorically speaking. 
For these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Paul says Mount Sinai is located in Arabia. The land of Arabia has always been identified with present-day Saudi Arabia. Here, Paul says the mountain of Moses is in Arabia, not in the Sinai Peninsula. Further confirming that the Jews must have crossed into Midian to meet God at the mountain where Moses first saw God appear. Now, from these details in Scripture, we can construct a theoretical Exodus path for Israel. So they leave Etham, heading east into the Sinai Peninsula. That would have been the logical direction to go, given that we've already heard God did not lead them north toward the Philistines. The only other place to go if you're leaving is to go southward down into the Sinai Peninsula. Initially, they probably followed a desert trading route which connected Egypt through the Sinai Peninsula over to Arabia. But at some point, the Lord intentionally led the nation off of that trading path down further south and into the rugged mountains of the southeastern tip of the peninsula. That's what led Pharaoh to conclude that they were wandering aimlessly and were trapped because no sane person would have taken that route for it leads to a trap. It leads to a dead end. And it leaves them vulnerable in a land that is largely controlled by Egypt. Is it logical to assume they could have traveled so far in just seven days? They had, for example, two million women, children, animals, etc. Well, the distance you're looking at there as the crow flies, meaning a straight line, is 180 miles. If we add another 30 miles for the wandering back and forth that they take, and you arrive at, let's say, 210 miles, traveled in seven days. If the Jews walked day and night, stopping, let's say, only occasionally, maybe we assume 20 hours of a 24-hour day they're traveling. That would mean that they only needed to walk about one and a half miles per hour on average to cover that distance. The average person walking leisurely walks between three and three and a half miles per hour. And we know they're in haste. We know they're running with some fear and urgency. So it's logical to assume they may have actually hit that three to three and a half mile average, even with all the the children and other things. If we were to increase their walking rate to that average leisurely rate of three and a half miles per hour, they would have only needed to travel for nine hours per day and could have slept all night long and still walk 210 miles. It's certainly within human capacity to do this. It's a very reasonable distance to walk, especially if they're walking both parts of day and night. Eventually, they had to land at some place where they're backed up to the water. But in being backed up to the water, there still has to be a couple of things required. We'll see them as we get further in the text, but I want to set them up for you here. What am I referring to? Well, there has to be enough space a beach, a beachhead, some area of land that is flat enough and wide enough and yet right next to the water that you could put two million plus people for any length of time. And yet they can't escape from it. It's a very interesting, very unique geographical problem here, isn't it? Because anything big and wide to hold two million would probably be big and wide enough that they could all escape if they had to in the face of an attack. But as you're going to see in the text, They're hemmed in in a way in which they can't go anywhere. There's only one place on the entire Gulf of Akba that could sustain millions of people under the conditions described in the text. Let's zoom down in from satellite down to ground to the point of the Gulf of Akba and let's see if we can find a place that has the geographic requirements we need for what the Bible says happened. There's only one place on the whole Gulf of Akba, where the mountains give way to a large, flat plain in which, on this plain, is the perfect set of conditions for people to gather and to congregate, and yet they cannot escape from it except through a very narrow canyon that feeds into this one spot. So if we zoom down to ground level and take a little look around from what we can see at this point in this animation, you see the channel that leads in opens up to a wide expanse, but yet at some point that expanse comes up against mountains in which you can no longer walk. You have to go into the sea. 
And if you wanted to retreat, your only way of retreat is through this narrow ridge, narrow gorge in which you walked in originally. And there's no hope of escaping an army were one to come down that road after you. Currently on that strip of land is a Hilton resort, by the way. Let's look at it from above. Here's them wandering aimlessly, eventually to be hemmed in by the wilderness, shut in. As Pharaoh's spies reported to Pharaoh that the Israelites had left the trade route and were headed south, the Pharaoh immediately thought he had an opportunity. He knew that there was no escape from this southern tip of Sinai since the Red Sea prevented the Jews from going further. Once they had entered into that steep mountain terrain, they lost the ability to maneuver freely. They would have been like rats in a maze with no way out. From that point, Pharaoh would only have had to drive his chariots into the mountains and let the mountains hold the Jews in place while the army descended upon them and crushed them. That was exactly the idea God intended for Pharaoh to have so that Pharaoh would lead this charge against Israel. God left Israel at this location as bait. And in the end, the nation would escape Pharaoh's army through a sea crossing. So that's a background piece. Let's now go into the text and let's watch this transpire. Verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariots ready and took his people with him. And he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, And he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them, camping by the sea, besides Pi-Hiaroth in front of Baal-Zephron. So my guess is that this is the location that's being described here in Exodus 14. God hardens Pharaoh's heart once again. We notice that. But notice this time all the people join with him in their decide in their change of heart and their change of mind. Now that Egypt has lost its source of free labor, who's going to do all the work? Who has all the work of building pyramids, making bricks and the, and the like? Now that they've lost two million slaves, the Egyptian people suddenly realize they are going to have to do all this work and that maybe letting Israel go wasn't such a good idea after all. So Pharaoh readies his own chariot and 600 more of his army, and they set out after Israel. By this point, Israel has already reached this encampment and is situated by the Red Sea. So this movement of Pharaoh comes only after Israel has reached their encampment. Because naturally, at the point of their encampment, Pharaoh sees an opportunity and he moves swiftly after them. If two million people walking gets here in seven days, Pharaoh in chariots obviously took far less. So in a relatively short time after they reach this point, Pharaoh follows with his army. In verse 9, we're told the Egyptian army overtakes Israel by the sea. So at this point, while they're encamped, while they're trapped, this is where the overtaking happens. The chariots of the 18th dynasty of Egypt, and that's the period we're talking about here, were feared throughout the ancient world. They're one of the reasons why Egypt had the best army in the world. They were fast. They were nimble. They enabled a warrior to quickly overtake an adversary. You could dodge an attack easily because they were so nimble. They would turn quickly, come back for a second pass. They were very effective war machines in an age in which there wasn't really anything to compare them with. The design of chariots in Egypt, however, evolved, as you might expect, over the centuries and over the various dynasties. In this particular dynasty, though, there's an interesting detail concerning the chariots. At this point... One design of chariot was fading and a new design was emerging. And for a period, they both coexisted. The designs were noted or marked by the number of spokes in the wheels. So there were four spoked and six spoked chariots. Now, why am I even bringing this up? Wait till the video and you'll see why. Moving on. Verse 10. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? 
Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. Well, in a sign of things to come, the people of Israel begin to complain to Moses at the first sight of the approaching Egyptian army. Now, you can't really blame them at first, certainly, because they're scared of what anyone would be scared of. The sight of the world's strongest army bearing down on you with your backs to the Red Sea and no hope of escape. That would scare anyone. But they have also seen the power of God in the time that led them to this point. And they've seen more of God's power, arguably, than anyone else in history had seen up to this point. Moses is getting the first taste here of what's in store for him in leading a stubborn and stiff-necked people for 40 years in the desert. The Israelites possess two of the worst personality flaws of any group of people you could ever know, especially when they're combined together. They have incredibly short memories and no appreciation for irony. And the, the two together create these ridiculous statements. It's the only explanation for some of the things they say to Moses. Like, for example, had he freed them simply so he could find a better place for them to die. As if to suggest it was Moses alone who imagined the whole caper and orchestrated the plan by himself. You know, their statement completely denies the reality that it was God himself who put on this show, who brought all of this together, right? So it's not Moses' fault that they're in any situation. So their words are completely unreasonable in light of what they have seen God do already on their behalf. They turn against Moses. They declare that Moses is at fault for freeing them from slavery. And in a sarcastic statement, they ask Moses if there weren't enough graves in all of Egypt to accommodate the death of Israel. Is that why you had to bring us out here so that we could die here instead? Besides being an exaggeration, the statement is ironic because Egypt was known worldwide for its elaborate graves, those being the pyramids. So it's, it's a bit of an ironic statement intentionally. Remember early in our study when we looked at the way God called Moses into leadership? And among the other things we noted was the way God had prepared Moses by giving him all that he needed to succeed. And despite Moses' objections, God had more than adequately prepared Moses for the task he had given him. And we also noted that God had made clear to the people that Moses was their appointed leader and that God backed Moses so that they would see that and they would follow him. And we drew parallels from what Moses experienced to our own experiences at times in ministry, whether as a formal leader or an informal leader. We can all identify to some degree with some of the things that Moses experienced. Here you're seeing more of the same. Here you're seeing the reality of life as a spiritual leader among God's people. And that reality is that as much as we like to think we are mature and reasonable, the truth is God's people are sheep. And I'm including all of us in this characterization. Like sheep, we are prone to stray. We are prone to get lost. We run in fear. And we also succumb to herd mentality. These are all characteristics of church people. Really, they're just characteristics of people, mind you. But we're saying within the church, this is characteristic of people. And any time you're called to lead God's people in any capacity, and I want you to broaden this perspective in your own mind because I don't want you to imagine this simply as truth for a pastor or leading in some capacity. Really, any time you have a, an opportunity to minister to other people, you're leading them, spiritually speaking, at some level. And any time you're called to do that in any capacity, you have to be prepared for a similar kind of response from time to time. Even our best people let fear and doubt cloud their memories and it leaves them vulnerable to saying dumb things about the nature of the problem or the kinds of solutions that should be sought. Not every decision you're going to make in ministry is going to lead to stunning success. And sometimes even our apparent defeats are outcomes God has intended to achieve some greater purpose. So here Moses sits 
with the appearance of defeat, leading the people to say dumb things. But in reality, it was just the way it was supposed to be for some greater good for God. God lets events fail. He lets programs fail. He lets ministries fail. He lets churches fail so that his purpose may be met. And human accomplishment, human satisfaction in your accomplishment is never God's purpose. Spiritual growth and holiness in his people and the increase of his glory, those things are the imperatives driving God's purposes. Trials and disappointments are some of the best experiences God can orchestrate to achieve those outcomes. So it only makes sense that a lot of what we might do might fail from a human perspective because in that failure comes an opportunity for a test or a trial which builds spiritual maturity, which in the end was the real purpose anyway. In response to these folks and their complaining, Moses says exactly the right things. And there's a model here we can draw from. First, he orders the people not to fear. Fear drives more conflict in the church than most people realize, I think. Our conflicts and our disagreements and our grumblings are more often driven by fear than I think we realize. Fear of rejection, fear of judgment, of others' judgment, fear of change, fear of failure, and actually fear of success drive a lot of conflict in the church. But fear is the root. Though there are other things too. There's envy, pride. There's other reasons why we have conflict. And if fear is ultimately the result of a failure to trust in the Lord in the midst of a crisis, then the leader's first response to the people should be to remind them not to fear, but to trust in the Lord. Remind people, exhort people not to behave out of fear. Remind them to trust the Lord and to let him direct the activities of the church. So the simple rule is don't fear, trust in the Lord. The second thing that he tells Israel is to watch for the work of the Lord in saving them from Egypt. After we tell people don't fear, don't worry, failure may be part of God's equation, trust that God's at work in this, the next thing is to say now, let's watch for the work of the Lord in what transpires from here. You've got to be thinking, if this is where God brought us, then he has a plan for where we go next. And we conquer fear best, I think, when we remember that the Lord is always at work. So always be ready to echo Moses' words in the face of fear and doubt. Take note of his work and be prepared to see him show up and address the needs of the people and move you forward. Fears that cause you to second guess whether or not to follow in the case of the people is born out of a failure to trust that God works best through trials. Think about Abraham's servant that he sent to go find the wife for Isaac. So his servant shows up at a well, no plan, and a fear that he'd had no hope of finding the right woman. And while he's praying, she shows up. Or I think of the mourners who were mourning Lazarus' death. And Jesus shows up, and they're too busy telling him how he was too late. Meanwhile, he goes on and raises Lazarus. At the point where we're consumed by our doubts and fears is often the point where God's ready to work. We just have to open our eyes and look for it. And then lastly, Moses tells the people, and this is my favorite part, Be quiet. (laughs) Discontent breeds discontent. The more the people grumbled, the more they tested God. The more they tested God, the more they provoked God's anger with their unbelief. And that's a pattern we're going to have a chance to follow more closely in later chapters. The pattern grows so bad, in fact, that eventually it becomes the impetus for God barring the people from the promised land. Even now, Moses is recognizing that the people are their own worst enemy in this battle. And so there comes a time for Moses, and I think for us as well, to remind people to stop grumbling, stop testing the Lord with our sinful doubting and fears and questioning. Because those things are sins. They're sins because they're born out of unbelief. Instead, be quiet and let the Lord work. So though the text doesn't record Moses' words to the Lord now, We can tell by the Lord's response in verse 15 that Moses must have asked for help, cried out to the Lord after he told the people to be quiet. And look at what the Lord says in verse 15. It's a fascinating response. The Lord says to Moses, why are you crying to me? God's answer to Moses is, I already made you the leader. I gave you my staff. The answer to your dilemma is obvious. Raise your staff. The waters will part. Order the people to go forward. Now, how was Moses supposed to know that he could do that? (laughs) That he could drive people forward into the sea? Because the Lord had already told Moses in the burning bush he was going to return to the mountain and worship him. 
What's on exactly the opposite side of this short walk across this thin gulf? The very land where Moses spent 40 years, he can see it. He knows it. It's like looking into his own backyard from the other side of the waters. And Moses has been told from the very beginning of this that he would end up there again with this people. In fact, when he left Egypt, God said, you will meet me and worship me here at this mountain. Now, is that a bridge too far? No pun intended. To have Moses believe that this was the moment in which he could part the waters? Well, have you noticed Moses' staff plays a prominent role in all or most of the supernatural acts that God has done? In the course of this experience, right? Obviously, the staff itself is not magic. It's not special, except that God is purposed to work through it. That was the whole reason why God gave Moses the staff. And when he gave it to him, instructed him to keep it with him always. The obvious point God has already made to Moses is that I've equipped you to lead this people. I've given you clear instruction. I've shown you the power you possess by my word, by my working through you. And the path forward is obvious. You just have to take a step of faith to go there. And then he says, so why are you crying out to me? It's as if God is telling Moses, if you aren't going to use the things I've already given you for your mission, why do you come back to me for something else? What else can I give you at this point? Now, you and I may be sitting here saying, well, wait a minute. He never actually said the words, Moses, part the sea. I have to believe, based on what God is saying now, that he knew the heart and the mind of Moses. And in that heart and in that mind, there must have been an understanding that he could go across the water. But he didn't have it in him in the moment to actually believe that that was what was going to happen. And so he hesitated. I come to that belief because God is a God of justice and he would not respond back to Moses in this way if it were not the case that Moses had everything he needed to know and every power he needed to possess in order to accomplish this mission. Only thing holding him back is the same thing that held back the Israelites as they prepared to cross the Jordan. That is a willingness to put their foot in the water And then watch the waters part. This is a fundamental principle of Scripture that comes up over and over again if you look for it. God has equipped us in faith to do many great things according to His will. And if we step out in faith and take advantage of the gifts He's already received, then we will meet every test God puts in front of us successfully to the will God has set. And the chief tool He's given us, by the way, is God's Word. But if we have not availed ourselves fully of what God has given us, why would we be surprised when we get stuck and God doesn't show up with some new answer to rescue us out of that trouble? This is a common experience in my time in ministry, particularly in a counseling context with many people who are struggling in one capacity or another in their life. But what they're struggling with are things that have already been addressed in God's word one way or another but we have either not noticed them or or forgotten them or ignored them. And as a result, we find ourselves back where we shouldn't have been, wondering how God's going to rescue us. I can't help but think sometimes God's just sitting up there saying, why do you cry out to me? I've given you all you need. Do what you've been told to do. Go forward. Watch what will happen. Furthermore, the Lord says he would be working alongside Moses, but in unexpected ways. The Lord says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he's going to chase you. Now, if you'd taken a poll of the Israelites at about this point, I'm sure that the option of let's have them chase us into the sea would have been way down the list of the things they would have voted for. But in the end, God's purpose in Pharaoh's existence is best met by having him chase them into the sea, because obviously when they do that, the crescendo of all of this is going to be God's might shown in the destruction of these people. What a great example of how you work with the Lord in accomplishing his will. He puts us on a path that's aligned with his will. He gives us gifts and he defines our purpose and our task. He asks us to follow the plan. He questions why we come back to him when we haven't even executed the stuff he's given us. But then as we go through that plan, he works in strange and even unexpected ways alongside us to make the most of our meager efforts. Consider what he's doing here. Moses is going to raise a stick in the air. The Israelites are going to flee like scared children into the water. That's their contribution. And with those steps of obedience, God creates a backdrop on which he can then work to display his great power and glory through the destruction of the Egyptian army. So you see, the stick had to go up in the air. The people had to walk into that channel of water before the rest of it could follow naturally. But all the glory came from God's work alongside. The part the men played were the most meager and miserable of parts, but they had to be played. 
So in verse 19, we come to the climax. The angel of the Lord, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land so the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all the Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen, went in after them into the midst of the sea. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This narrative stands, I think, unparalleled in all the Bible. Why is it that the most memorable scenes in Scripture often revolve around great displays of God's power through water? Have you ever noticed that? Noah, Jonah, Elijah, you know, the water that puts out the fire. Jesus on the Galilee, walking on the water. None are more powerful than this one, though, right? This one seems to be the one we all remember the best. The timeline of the event, though, is a little more complex than the movie portrays it to be. First, the army arrives shortly before nightfall, and as they come down that circuitous cavern, as they reach the mouth, the gorge, by the way, that word pi hieroth, it literally means mouth of the gorge. So as they come to that point, God moves in the form of the pillar in the cloud from before the people to behind the people, and he effectively bottles up the nation of Egypt in that channel. They can't go anywhere else themselves. They're trapped like rats in that same maze at this point. They can't get to the people. And it says that that happens as nightfall begins and they are held back for the entire evening, for the entire nighttime. Then secondly, during that time, the Lord brings an east wind, which has the effect of moving the water back, creating that channel in the water. And then at the same time, drying out the ground, the the seabed, so that when they go to walk on it, it won't be muddy. They'll be able to walk on dry ground. Third, after the land is dry, which is probably some hours later, the people finally begin to cross. So you have to consider this is not a sudden momentary event. This is 10, 12 hours of time of letting the ground dry. Then the people walk. And only at the very end, of course, do the Egyptians cross as well. If you look at the crossing point on a map where I believe it occurred, it's 12 miles of crossing. So if we assume a hurried three and a half mile an hour pace among the people, it would still take one person about four hours to cross the distance. So assuming you have two million people moving together, it probably adds another hour or two total from the time the first one moves in and out to the one the time the last one moves in and out. So during this entire time, four to six hours of the evening time, the, the army's being held back. So this is a, an extended period of time here compared to what the movie portrayed, of course. I think the whole movie was about six hours, but that's another story. <laughs> At just the right time, the Lord lets the Egyptians enter. Isn't that interesting? He holds them back until just the right moment, then he lets them free. The destruction of Egypt happens in several steps as well. First, the Lord awaits for the morning, so the Egyptians start to move in daylight. I wonder if the purpose in having the event of the Egyptians cross wait until morning is so that the Israelites could witness it in daylight. 
the army is still moving through the Red Sea, even as Israel now watches with fear from the opposite bank. So the opposite bank is now populated by the Israelites as they watch the approach of this other army. The second step is the Lord, now we're told, appears in the midst of the sea. So the pillar of fire and cloud, which had been holding them back, suddenly is no longer there. That's what allows them to come down from the mountain and into the sea. At some point after they've entered the Red Sea, the Egyptians have entered, God appears again now with the pillar of fire and cloud amidst them. And it says he looks down on the Egyptian army, causing confusion in the army, chariot wheels, my version says they swerve, but literally in Hebrew it's fall off. So it's as if the chariot wheels are coming off the chariots. The wheels are coming off the Pharaoh's plan here, so to speak. And he's disabling men and horse at the same time. That leads to the Egyptians now coming to a point of fear. They realize the Lord is fighting against them. But now, because of the way he's caused confusion, they can't retreat. So they can't go forward. They really can't go backward. They can't go anywhere. You've got chariots with one wheel missing, horses tied to the chariot, men now stumbling off of the chariots and wandering within this space. The final step is God orders Moses to raise his staff, and then the waters close and the bodies wash ashore. So while our attention is drawn to that sea opening and that sea closing, the work I'm most fascinated in in all of this is the way God is determined to use Moses and that staff to do it all. Why does he insist here on having Moses raise the staff again to close the waters? It's, it's as if God's in the midst of the waters fighting him and saying, Moses, Moses, throw that, get that staff up now. This will get, you know, Like he needs the help. The only plausible answer is to impress upon the people that Moses is their appointed representative and he works God's will. That's another sign of God's goodness and the fact that he is good to let leaders be seen to lead so that that encourages us to follow. Now, rather than spend any more time on describing this scene, we know so well, I happen to have found some rare archival footage taken of the event. Uh, I've condensed it down to the two-minute version. So this is the two-minute version of The Crossing. I'm available to take the whole movie and do that if you'd like. I can get the thing. I think I can get it down to seven minutes. That concludes the formal part of the teaching.